Hello out there. Welcome to the debut episode of the Artists of Motion podcast. This debut edition of our podcast features Grandmaster Chuck Boyd of the International Karate Connection Association and Temple Protection Institute. I had a blast talking with Grandmaster Boyd, and he took us through the challenges he faced finding a school to train at in the 1960s. He talked about his experiences with Chuck Sullivan in the original Crenshaw and Hawthorne Kempo schools and training with Dan and Asano in Jeet Kune Do, as well as a whole lot more. Without further ado, let's get to the interview. On today's podcast, we have Grandmaster Chuck Boyd from the International Karate Connection Association. How are you doing, Chuck? Doing well, thank you. So for those of us who are playing the home game and are not quite familiar with your background, can you give us a little background beyond uh, the part that I found on the website here? Uh, what I got on the website says you started with Chuck in 1966, and as far as I can tell, are his uh, most long-standing continuous students. Is that accurate? Oh, there have been students, Carl Shalio, Stacy Passia, they're, they've been there longer than me. Although Stacy uh, actually just came back to Chuck after being gone for 41, 41 years. But uh, he never left Kempo, but his job took him away. But I've been, I've been with Chuck since uh, April of 1966, and uh, uh, he's been my instructor other than uh, I had brief uh, stays with, uh, with other instructors uh, uh, during my career. But uh, Chuck's been the one, main one. And uh, after Chuck, well, Ed Parker was co-owner of the school, so Ed Parker was at our school teaching on a regular basis. Uh, didn't He didn't teach the basic class with a beginner, your white belt through uh, orange and purple. He didn't teach that, but he was there with the intermediate and the advanced class. And uh, so I had to wait uh, about a year and a half before I got uh, introduced to uh, Ed Parker's teaching. Uh, and that was a whole nother level of... Uh, of nerves and shaking in front of Ed Parker. Oh, that sounds like there's a story there. Can we uh, pick on that for a second? Because that sounds like there's a really good story there. How was that first experience jumping on the mat with Ed Parker? Well, he was a little, he was a little intimidating. He's a big man and uh, he moved like lightning. And if you were dumb enough to ask a question, he would call you up, which happened to me one time. I'd, saw him do a technique and I didn't really understand the motion because he moved so fast and he slammed the guy to the ground and, you know, banged his knee. I'm looking like, what did you do, Mr. Parker? And he says, Chuck, come up here. And everybody was biting their lip to keep from laughing. And I didn't know, I didn't know what was going on. And when I, and I got up, I punched, I did my punching and Mr. Parker did this move, did his technique on me. And, Mr. Parker, some people said he had excellent control. Well, you know, with his excellent control, Mr. Parker's had an excellent strip. So he, he'd move you where he wanted you to go. And when he finished that, that move, he did a hammer fist across my collarbone and drove my knee into the mat. And I still didn't see what he did. All I know, I just felt the motion. But I was not going to raise my hand and say, could you show me that again? As I slithered to the second roll, you know, <laughs> you know the other the other guys were laughing so hard. I think blood was coming down from their lips. They bit it so hard. And somebody else was dumb enough to raise their hand, and I got to see the move a little better when he slammed them down to the floor. And uh, as they were dragging back, so there, there was none that of that. Was hey, can I see that, that again uh, on uh, this person over here? I didn't quite catch oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then when we got really good. You know, Parker knew, Mr. Parker knew you could take it. He'd call you up. Chuck, come up. George, come up. And when he said Chuck, I was hoping and praying he was calling Chuck Sullivan. But he would be me. He would call it up because he looked my way. And I'm like, oh, God. Not, I'm the, the other Chuck, you know. And uh, then we'd take our licks. After class, when we were changing our clothes, we had bruises on our body, all over our body, shoulders, chest, you know, wherever he happened to hit your arm. And those were like our, our, our medal of valor. You know, we, we got that on our, all over our body. So uh, it was uh, quite interesting. We're working out with uh, Mr. Parker. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Definitely. So yeah. you started in 1966 with Mr. Sullivan. I would have been at the Crenshaw school. 
Is that right? At the Crenshaw School, yes. That's correct, yes. And mm -hmm. I've heard there's an interesting yeah, story about how you wound up at that at Chuck School. Is that something you you want to discuss? Yeah, I, I can, sure, I can discuss that. I had an incident where a, a guy uh, actually walked up on me. I didn't know it at the time. He he had a knife in his hand. He was an older gentleman, looked like an old gangster. And uh, he walked up on me in a parking lot because my wife, had opened the door and she was pregnant at the time and put a little ding in his white Cadillac. And I got out the car and I told the guy I would fix it, but he walked, he was really mad. I said, I, I, I was a meat cutter, apprentice meat cutter at the time. And I worked for a supermarket and I told him I was definitely get it fixed. And this guy walked up on me, said, I don't know how to cut your throat. And he, and I kept feeling some stings in my stomach. Well, he stuck me three times in the stomach with a tip of his knife. And I didn't know I was even being stuck, you know. And one of the guys he was with said, oh, leave that young man alone. His wife just nicked the car. Leave it alone. He said, if I come out here and see you, I'm going to cut your throat. Well, I was going into the same store. I changed my mind, and I, I took off and went over to my dad's house. And my dad was a deputy sheriff, and he uh, was a deputy sheriff for 32 years. I think at that time he had been uh, probably at least 25 years on the force, somewhere around there. And uh, I asked him uh, if I should, uh, uh, while my mother was taping up my stomach, I had little little, little stick marks in my stomach, and uh, I had bled on my T-shirt. And I asked my dad if I should uh, start lifting weights or learn to box. And my dad was judo and jiu-jitsu. He learned that in the Air Force, and, and then he picked up some as, as a sheriff. And uh, he's... He told me, no, there was a little Filipino guy in jail, and my dad ran the county jail, so he was in the county jail. And this little Filipino guy put six of my dad's best officers, they called them the goon squad, put them in a hospital. He broke their legs, arms, everywhere he did. Everywhere he hit them, he broke them. And so my dad went in with a mattress and, like, six more guys and told the guy <laughs> they were going to put him in a – they are going to send him to the infirmary. You know, that mattress was going to pin him to the wall. They are going to beat the snot out of him. And he was a little Filipino guy. The guy was probably no more than five, 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 six, he said, and small frame. And the, and the guy told him, he must have said, what did you do? He said, I use hands and feet. I use karate. So my dad said, well, I'm going to have to cuff you, you know, that. And I, you know, the guy said he needed medication because he had malaria. And uh, the officer that he talked to pushed him away, put his hands in his face and pushed him away, and he just... He took him out and took the rest of them out. So my dad says, you need to look up that karate because at the time I was like six feet, but I weighed probably 145 pounds, you know. And uh, he said, I, I think that'd be good for you. So I started looking for karate schools. And there was a Japanese school uh, that down in L.A., and they did uh, Aikido, Jiu-Jitsu, Judo, and Kendo. And the night I went, they were all masked up. I didn't know at the time they were doing kendo. And I knocked on the door, and they told me they don't teach non-Japanese. That's it. It's, you know, you had to belong to the Buddhist temple, which was across the street. And I'm, oh, okay. And I passed that place oh, for years. I knew about it, but uh, I never realized it was all Asian in there. But I looked in there, and it definitely was all Asian. So then I went down to uh, Chinatown, because there weren't any... Karate schools in Taekwondo, like you see now, you can drive, you can you can drive in a mile, and you're gonna see at least a couple of schools, you know. But uh, back then, there weren't any Korean schools, and uh, so I went to the uh, Chinatown, and they had the Praying Mantis and the uh, Yin and Yang. I knew what that was, but they didn't. They, they just came to the door and basically said something in Chinese to me and slammed the door in my face, and that was it. And uh, so I went probably to five or six places there. Then I saw an ad in the paper, and I went out to the valley. And I was all the way out in the valley, and I saw this. They had the Japanese flag on the window. And the, the windows were painted white. You couldn't really see in. And I heard the guys working out, and I opened the door, and the whole class stopped. And the guy walked, put his hand in my chest, and pushed me out of the door and says, uh, what do you want? I said, well, I came to, you know, watch and sign up. He says, no, you can't sign up here. And they about six guys walked me out to the, actually pushed me out to the street. And my car was about 
oh, maybe six car lengths down from the building. Told me to get out of there, so I got out of there, and that was it. They weren't very friendly. Then I went to USC, and there was I saw the frat house. They were working out. And uh, the guy said, nope, can't work out here. This has got to be a USC fraternity. That's it. So two years went by, and I just happened to go up Florence, uh, past Florence on Crenshaw, and I saw maybe six, eight guys in white geese. The old geese were really short, you know, they, and they, they weren't really white. It was kind of like wheat-colored, some of the cheaper geese, beginner geese they gave you. Anyway, a bunch of guys were standing out there. And I saw them standing out there, and I passed. I just kept going. I said, no, I'm not. I'm not going to go up, you know, because I've been humiliated enough. But I got enough nerve, six to eight blocks, made a U-turn, and I went back. And I walked up, and I said, how are you guys doing? They all said, oh, hey, how are you doing? And I said, well, what do you guys do? They said, Ed Parker Kempo Karate. And they rolled, the, they rolled the R, karate, back then. I said, well, what is that? Oh, come in. You can watch. And they were waiting for the class to open up, and their doors opened up. They had a couple of benches. And it might have been four or five people sat down and watched, including myself. And I saw them warm up and this, that, and the other. And then Chuck Sullivan came on the mat. And I was just amazed that this little guy, could move like lightning and had so much power. And after they worked out, you know, the classic guys went in the back and some walked out the front and I was sitting there and Chuck Sullivan walked over to me and I said, well, here it goes. I'm either going to be punched, thrown out or something. And he walked up and said, hello, I'm Chuck Sullivan. And I said, well, I'm Chuck Boyd. He said, oh, two Chucks, great. What do you think? I said, man, I really like it. He says, you want to start? And I said, you mean I can join? He says, oh, yeah. So we walked over, and he told me the prices. I picked out my day because you could work out Monday and Wednesday or Tuesday and Thursday. So I was a Monday and Wednesday. Class signed up right on the spot and uh, bought my gi right there. They sold you your gi. And that was the first little gi you got, and it was short and kind of thin, but kind of like a beginner gi. And that was my start, April of 1966. And this is now, we're recording this in November of 2017, and you're still at it and still going. Still at it, So yes. at what point did you start teaching? Okay, interesting. Uh, I made Greenbelt, and uh, at that time, they told me it would take five to seven years to get a black belt because Ed Parker had introduced all kind of stuff. And, and so we, we were learning a lot. And all I ever wanted to be was a brown belt. I never thought I'd ever be a black belt, ever. Because there weren't any. Ed Parker was the only black belt in the country in, in, in Chinese Kempo. Hawaii was not a state yet. It was still a possession. So it was here on the mainland. There was no other black belt. Then Chuck was a black belt. And after that, I saw Stacy and George. Stacy was the first black belt in the class. Then George Quinones. And... But in our in our group, there were no black belts. I mean, in the country, there were no black belts. And so uh, to see that, you know, it was just absolutely amazing. So I finally made green belt, and it was probably mm, two years into training. And a friend of mine asked me if I could teach him what I knew. And I I said, well, yeah, sure. He says, well, I got my cousin wants to learn too. So I got the two of them in my garage. And I started teaching in 1968. So I uh, can't remember. I know it was the winter months of 1968. It was kind of cool out in the garage. And because uh, that was the first time I had to put a T-shirt on under, uh, under you know, uh, under my gi because we didn't wear T-shirts at the time under a gi. And so I started training them, and my class went from the two to 23 students <laughs> in my in my garage, we split it over. The garage is open. They're all out in the, you know, the cement part. But I had 23 students, and uh, that was fun. You know, so that was my teaching. Plus, I was a manager on, on my job, so I was used. I was used to dealing with people. I was used to being a leader. So, and I love teaching. So, I, I trained guys, to, uh, people on my job, to be assistant managers, and I trained them to be a manager. So they sent me. They I, all the time I got people to train. So. This was just another medium for training, and I learned a whole lot by training. I started learning 
more of the principles and understanding the principles of Kempo. I call it principles of motion is what I've learned and application of pain, regardless of the system. Those are the only things that I tell people I teach now. So you said regardless of the system. So that leads me to my next question for you, which is so what else have you trained in in addition to your Kempo? Well, I, at uh, Chuck's class, I met a guy named Ben Wong. He came in. We used to have all kinds of guys come in. And Ben Wong was a northern shell in Kung Fu. And he really wanted to learn Kempo. So we hooked up. And for a little over a year, he trained me in northern shell in Kung Fu. And I trained him in Kempo. And not showing them the forms and stuff, but the techniques and how we move and stuff. And uh, we worked out with that. Then another friend of mine, and I went to high school with the guy. I never knew he was Kung Fu. I was uh, uh, Elmer Liu, and he was Seal Lam and Chole Fat. So he mingled in with us through with Seal Lam and Chole Fat. And so we, I did the Kung Fu thing at the time. And uh I was showing them Kempo, and I saw the similarity. It was a lot of similarities of footwork and shuffles and and weapons, and it's just some of them would elongate the weapon more, others would keep it shorter. But I saw the it it it, it blended, it fit, and I was really glad that I knew Kempo because had I learned any other system, I you know I wouldn't have known the circular motion and the stances and such. So I was able to, to blend that in. And then after I did that, uh, I, uh, Chuck Sullivan closed his school. So I went over with Steve Sanders, who's now Steve Mohammed at the BKF at the first school that they had, they had just opened it up on 103rd and Western. And that was the first building they had. And they, he had a stable of tournament fighters that were phenomenal. These guys were just, just great, you know. Sammy Pays, uh, Madman Ernest Russell, Crager, uh, just Carl Scott, just a bunch. Frank Nitty Wilson, these guys, clean clock everywhere. So I got to fight those guys on a daily basis. And my uh, my freestyle, that's all they did was freestyle. It was no technique, nothing. And that was it, freestyle fight. They got everybody coming in. Jim Kelly used to come in all the time. And everybody would fight. We all we did was spar. And one night, Steve asked me to be on his the 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 fighting team, the national team that he had. But I worked six days a week as a manager, and I was a little older than those guys. I I might have looked young at the time, but I was in my early thirties at that time. Uh, and uh, these guys were kids, and they could afford to run all over the country or whatever in a van. And but I couldn't do that with a family. So I respectively declined, but I still trained there, and I loved the training. And then uh, after that, I went over to Ed Parker. Um, Ed Parker taught a black belt only Thursday class. Chuck Sullivan gave me uh, uh, the heads up, and so I went over to that class, and uh, that was really, really good. I worked out there with when Parker just showed us just all kinds of advanced things, but he was a strickler on basics, just basics all the way. And so uh, after he did the, after I did that, uh, the guys were going to Chinatown, uh, not Ch yeah, Chinatown. They were going over to Chinatown and uh, working out with Daniel Osano and Bruce Lee. And Bruce was gone most of the time because he's making movies, but they kept asking me to come down and they would come back and show me what they knew. And so we, after class, we'd go over what they knew and back and forth and back and forth. And I never went down. I regret it now just so I could have on my resume, I was at the Chinatown, you know, Junfan Kung Fu School. But uh, I wasn't there, but I got, I got the information from them. And then uh, one night uh, I get a call and uh, Daniel Osano called me and says he's got a place in Torrance, Filipino Kali Academy, man, come down there, you got a six-month waiting list. I said, come on, nobody's got a six-month waiting list. Well, I went down there, you had to be a black belt only to get in that class. 
And sure enough, it was a waiting list of six months. I started right away. And uh, he wanted to put me in level two. I said, I want to start in the beginning. I want to start lying like I don't know anything. So I started in level one with 44 guys. And one month later, it was seven of us left. The rest of them, they couldn't hang. They couldn't, they could not take the, just the warm-up was like 45 minutes and they killed you. I mean, just the warm-up was just murder. You're just in a puddle of sweat and no geese, t-shirt, sweatpants, a cup and tennis shoes and a mouthpiece. That's it. Later on, we had to buy boxing gloves. And so I did, I did, I learned from Daniel Osano and Richard Busillo. Richard Busillo was basically the level one instructor. He handled all the level one uh, teaching everything. And he was a magnificent teacher. And uh, Dan would bring guests in to teach us, uh, boxing coaches, Muay Thai coaches, uh, bando coaches, shoot fighting coaches, just all types of different people would come in, uh, stick the screamers, the sticks, which I didn't like at the time. Because uh, I kept getting my knuckles hit. If you get hit on your knuckles with a stick, you don't like the stick. But <laughs> anyway, that's another thing there that we'd have to learn the sticks. And I'm glad I, I'm glad I got the knowledge. Dan taught the sticks, and uh, Richard did all the hand to hand until I got level two. When I went level two, Richard warmed us up, and Dan taught the class. And uh, level three was all Dan. He warmed up and he taught everything. So I got to level three, and uh, I got really good at at uh, their method of fighting, which you're in a cement floor. There's eight-foot circle on the floor, and you learn to stay within that eight-foot circle when you're fighting your opponent. When you step out of the circle, everybody has a collie stick, and they'll hit you anywhere on the body except the head. They will not hit your neck and head. But they'll whack you as hard as they can in the back, the legs, your arm. And that's to keep you in the circle. So when you first learn, you're being, you're being hit and you turn around and look for the guy that hit you. The guy that you're fighting is still cleaning your clock. He's wearing you out. So you learn to move and angle and stay in. And I really appreciate that uh, uh, from the Dan teaching that, and Kempo helped there too, because the way George taught us, and we used to call him Crazy George at the old Crenshaw School, it was light contact to the head, medium contact to the body, bare knuckle, and that was it. You learned, you learned to take your lumps, and if you didn't block it, you got hit. He says, well, you better get hit here. You're learning. If you get hit on the street, you're in trouble. So... That that basically my background is that, and I learned a whole lot from Dan, uh, and he I got in touch with the Salat community, and uh, I learned uh, some American Kung Tao, and uh, so I, and uh, a few other blends of different arts. Now Dan Dan has learned several different styles, and he calls it Mafalindo Salat, which. It's basically what I would call uh, not one style, but a, a mulligan soup of different styles of salat. And he picked the very best that he liked from it, and that's what he taught. So that's basically what I teach. I don't teach a complete system of any salat. I'll just interject that once my guys get uh, green belt to brown belt, and I see that they're able to handle what we have, then I'll start adding in elements of salat, kuntal salat in there. So that's my history. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. So what would you call yeah. what you're teaching today? I call, well, I, my base style is Chinese Kempo. Chinese Chinese Kempo is my is my base. That I call it just Chinese Kempo. Uh, my the name of my my own personal system is the is uh, Temple Protection Institute, and because God says your temple is that your body is the temple of God, you're protecting it. We're the institute, and we're the warrior within dojo, and um, so I'm the TPI. I just say TPI warrior within dojo, and I tell my guys I use the IKCA syllabus. Basically, we ha I have some of my own techniques, 
I'll teach them Parker's techniques, Ed Parker's techniques that I learned when I was in the IK, IK, uh, International Kimbo Karate Association. And uh, what I do is when I'm teaching them a technique, I'll, I'll do something like being crane, and I'll teach them that. And then I'll say, this is the way Parker did it. But now I'm going to show you Chuck Sullivan's adaptation to this. We're going to change, we're going to change our targets. So I'll show them the way Chuck Sullivan did it, you know. And they're like, oh, wow. So that's the way Ed Parker did it. Now this is the way Chuck Sullivan's doing it. And I'll say, okay, now I'm going to do the same technique, but I'm going to put my flavor with it. So I'll put my flavor with it, and I'll finish it up maybe with a select break, you know. And, and they'll look, oh, okay. So, you know, so that they'll have a flavor of what was, what I learned, and now what, what I'm doing now. And I let them, literally, they can pick anything they want. I give them that choice. Usually, if it's a, a something that I really don't like, they don't like it either. So they like basically more what I'm teaching when I blend and borrow. And uh, that's about it. I, I mix things up. We, I like mixing things up. I get bored very quick uh, if I stay on the same thing. But we'll take a principle, a technique, and I'll say this is the root. And it may be the beginning of an IKCA technique and uh, the beginning of uh, fist, fist of Fury, maybe. And you start out with the two double back fists, then we'll ram. Then I'll finish it up. I'll start adding other things to the, to the ending. I'll start adding different endings. And one day I did a technique, and I, for two hours we did a technique, and I taught them eight different endings, and they had to run the line and do it back and forth on each other. And they asked me, at the end of the class, how many Indies do you know? I said, how much time do you have? You know, I could do this <laughs> all week. So it just, you know, it just lets them know that, that we have other things than, you know, you can blend, borrow, add, subtract, do all types of things. Then I'll add in the salad. I may add in uh, uh, the Pan and Tucan, which is the Filipino dirty fighting. I may add that in. And a few moves from that, you know, not, not everything. And and they'll they'll look oh wow you know so just to give them a new flavor on something because what I, my, I what I teach I'll teach it different ways one guy will pick it up another guy won't he'll pick up something else and because they're not me they're them and the way God wired them is the way they're wired and they'll they they'll they do kempo their way their expression they do what I teach their way because nobody's doing kempo the way Ed Parker's doing it. I know that right now. Nobody. Uh, everybody says, well, Larry Tatum is the closest to Ed Parker. Ooh, he's He may be trying to imitate him, but he's not Ed Parker. He's doing his version of it. I know Chuck Sullivan, once Ed Parker taught us a move, Chuck would modify the move, you know, because Chuck was smaller stature. Ed Parker could roll around with his body with 245, 50 pounds, he'd use his body and elbows to rack you up while he was doing the technique. So, but Chuck wasn't made that way. And so guys that were big would do that. Guys my size, Chuck's size, we would, we want to hit you and get out of there, you know. We didn't want to rack you up with our elbows in close while we were moving. Did you do something else? So it was, it was interesting, yeah. Sounds like and you got a whole bunch of blended question. curriculum there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but I kind of blend it in, and it, based on how long they stay with me, they get more, you know. I'm, I I teach them a little bit on this, on a screamer and on this, and Dan taught us 12 different, 12 different uh, stick systems, nice fighting systems, and he blended it. So I'm, are you going to do this as a blend? And this family, because it's a bunch of families over there, and some are good at this, some are good at that, some like this, some like that. He taught us all types of things. Tell us how to lock and throw with sticks and different things. So what I'll do is I bring people along, and and maybe the last half an hour of our of my two hour class, everybody grabs a stick, either two sticks or one stick or my short stick, and I and I'll show them that I even show them Kempo sticks. Parker, Mr. Parker taught us Kempo sticks, so I I show them Kempo sticks. He showed us the Kempo club, which is was that you have to go out and buy an axe handle for that. Because they use the things that they tie the boat up with, those big, those, I don't know what you call them. And they, they're, they're really huge, and he used that. 
but you got to pretty got to be pretty big to handle that pretty good. Yeah, it's a big uh, but I, I, yeah, but I, I like the sticks. Uh, they teach good angles, and I'll show them. I said just in case somebody's swinging at you, they swing a bottle at you, pipe, tire iron. It doesn't matter. You'll be able. You know the angles and of the, the angles of attack, and I'm going to show you at least how not to get hurt. You know, and that's what I do. It's just it's not to make them an expert. I'm not an expert, even all my years of training in it. I didn't go for any rank in a screen run orange. I didn't even know they could, you could get rank in it. Everybody, we just trained because they made us train, you know, and it, it was fun. It was fun. That was it. That's awesome. So you've been in and around a whole lot of different places since 1966. Oh, yes, definitely, yes. So out mm -hmm. of all of that, um, what do you think the hardest part in your journey has been other than obviously getting in the door that first time? Mm, the hardest part is the stick to ofness, the scheduling. You got a family. You, yeah, I work six days a week as a manager. Uh, just finding the time to be consistent, you know, and I was consistent. And a lot of times I have a very understanding wife and she let me, that was my hobby. Uh, some guys go out and drink and shoot pool. My friends bowled and had beers, and I liked, I liked doing something. I felt that was a good hobby that I could learn something from it. It'd be, you know, I mean, there's not much you can learn from bowling that you can take out of the, out of the bowling lanes, you know, or you shoot pool and you put your little stick away and you walk out with your end stick in the case and, there's not much, you know, you learn, you know, maybe it's relaxing for some, but for me, I didn't particularly care for that. So uh, it, it's just, uh, it, the hardest thing, though, is trying to be consistent. It's, and being, I was consistent. I stayed consistent. And uh, I, I may have gotten away a month or two months here or there when when I had to do something with the job or with the family, but or when I was injured, you know, I've, you get injured, you you stay away, <laughs> so you can heal. But uh, other than that, it's just the consistency. I, I just love the art. I love the science of motion. Uh, I like most guys don't like to hear about the background and the technical aspects of w what made this art come about. I love that stuff. I'm a I love the history of the arts. I'm just a, a I love the meaning behind the motion because you'll find a certain art and you wonder why did these people fight like that? You have to learn about the people, their size, their, their speed, their skill level, who, who brought over the swordplay to them and how did they develop that? And I love that kind of stuff. I love the history of things. And uh, I feel that that helps me understand the art better. And I try to pass that on also to my students that are willing to listen, and I say not all of them are willing to listen because I've had some students that, oh, gee, here we go again, you know, that type of stuff, and uh, that shut up and listen, you know. <laughs> and then I've had others that just enjoy that. So it's just, with me, I enjoy it. So I try to pass it on. I can totally appreciate that. I'm, I'm a martial historian myself, so I love oh, yeah. stuff like that. Um, yes. So on that same token, your biggest uh, secret to your success was basically sticking to it, you know, persevering, being consistent. So what advice do you yes. give your students for being consistent and sticking with it as well? How do they how, how do you help them motivate to get past their own life challenges? Well, I that's a, that's a very good question. I tell all my new people that if you want to succeed in Kempo or anything in life, you've you've got to be you've got to be self motivated, and you gotta have you gotta be eager to learn. I mean, you gotta be, you know. Period. I say you, you gotta be a student. Don't come in because you've done something in the military, or you think you're a hot stuff, and think or your last instructor promoted you to brown belt and whatever Watto Fumo, whatever you know. I'm just making that up, but whatever style. And, and you come in and think that, you know, you're pretty hot, but you're going to add this to you. I says, come in like you're brand new. You don't know anything. Empty your cup and let me pour into you. And I says, always be thirsty. I said, because life is going to get in the way. And life is a booger. You know, life will 
your job changes, wife changes, you know, who knows, you know, somebody rips you off or you end up in some place you don't want to be and and just things happen. And I tell them, that's the biggest thing that's going to be in your way. I said, life, life will, but you've got to overcome the obstacles and be consistent if you want to succeed in this journey that I call Kempo, you know, and, and, and that's it. I tell them it's a journey. Life is going to get in the way. So I, I try to tell them that, you know, you got to stick to it. I let them know outright, right out front, that is, you, you, don't, you don't get anywhere unless you put something in. you, you got to put something. I don't, care, I don't care how great a football player you are. I, I got a guy that was a standout college running back. And he was like, gee, why am I having problems in, in this when I was so good and when I'm such a good athlete, you know? And I tell him, you're thinking too much. You know, you, and he was trying to relate everything to football. Don't. That's what he was doing. And I was kind of like, gee, I mean football. But he's a running back. He was looking at how you move and, you know. And he, ended up, he ended up being one of my best black belts, though. And he's, he's an excellent guy. That's awesome. Anyway. That's, I find that mm-hmm. to be a, a real difficult piece is how do you instill that motivation and that perseverance into some of the students that just don't quite – have that innate ability with them. So that's an awesome answer. Thank you for that. Yes. So uh, kind of dovetailing off of that one, um, I don't want to name names, but you can just put it in your mind. Have you ever had a student that you just saw so much potential in, but for whatever reason they couldn't stay motivated or they couldn't stay, uh, they couldn't stick with it? Yeah, what what do you think is the, oh, is the biggest reason why that person didn't stick with it, and how can we help others learn from that? Yeah, well, I I, I got a my youngest son, Chris. I'm on her name. Started working out with me. I didn't ask him. Don't ask any of them. They know what I do. And he was like mm, 18, and he started working out with his best friend. His friend really wanted to learn. So they started, and I had a little private class for both of them, semi-private. And my son picked this up so good. He frightened me. by the He's much bigger than me by the power he had. You know, I just couldn't believe how powerful this guy, this young man was. His friend was, was a laid-back kind of guy that wanted to joke a lot and wasn't really serious. And I was telling him, you know, you get in your stance because this, that, and the other. And he'd always kind of be, have some little joke about it or something. And uh, after about two months, two and a half months, his friend didn't want to come anymore. So he didn't want to come anymore. My son didn't want to come anymore. And I'm like, no, but you're so good. I mean, you, this, that, and the other. He goes, ah, I was just coming to help out so-and-so, uh, to be with him. And I said, but you're so, I see so much potential, but it wasn't it wasn't him, you know, he's, he had a different motivation for it, but boy, was he good. I mean, he picked up everything I showed him, he picked up and he was a good athlete. He played, he played, uh, baseball and, uh, football, but, uh, he, you know, boy, was he good. It just, I had a little tear, you know, I said, wow. That's so frustrating when you can see that potential and you just, they don't have the drive to actualize it. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, his friend I could care less about. You know, he was a, he was kind of laid back anyway. And I said, well, if, he, if it, the light bulb goes off, it'll be pretty good. But it didn't go off in, my, in him. But my son, oh, my God, he picked these moves up. I mean, and he had so he had already just developed the stances with power in. And I'm like, wow, gee, it, it impressed me, you know. Tell you that would be great if he can listen to this podcast and then all of a sudden he gets motivated to train again. Oh, that would be wonderful. Yeah. Hopefully that happens. Yeah, but I never, I never talked, I never talked to him about it. He works, he travels a really long distance for his job back. So, uh, at that point, you know, I don't know what this time. One of these days, maybe, maybe one of these days, I may be eighty out in the garage training. You know, but I'm sure you we'll love see. every minute of it too. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. So let's switch gears talking uh, more about some of the students that have been successful. So 
what's the single most important thing that you look for when you decide that someone's ready to be tested and ready to be a black belt? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, before I used the IKCA system, I just used what we did, you know, in tempo. We just, the guys that could pick up everything and just flow with it. I mean, techniques, sparring, good attitude, uh, respectful. Uh, if they're not respectful in my place, they, they don't even come in. I, I interview people on the phone and are in person and when they talk to me and I'll just tell them I'm not taking students now because I have a home studio. I'm very particular about, I don't want to bring bad attitudes in here. You know, somebody that wants to learn because the, the, the guy took his girlfriend and now I want to just stomp him. I don't want that kind of guy. So, uh, you know, I, we have, I look for good attitude, uh, follow through on what they do, uh, they, how motivated they are. They're hungry. Uh, I mean, most of, most of my guys, they're hungry. And they listen and they, they do the techniques really well. <clears throat> and they, excuse me. They have to do the techniques really well. They, they have to perform. I don't, I don't give black belts away. I tell them, you're representing me. And I, I don't ever want Chuck Sullivan, Vic LaRue, Robert Temple or anybody to see you working out somewhere and they say, man, that, that person is pitiful. Who's your instructor? And they say, Chuck Boyd. I tell them that. I said, no way. You're going to represent me? You're going to represent. And that, I said, they, they got to work for their black belt. I make them sweat for it. Matter for all their belts, they sweat for it. I don't give uh, pass on condition. I, I don't do that. You, you either pass or you fail. But what basically, but they're all, they've already passed when I when I promote them, you know. I run them through I run them through tests and whatever have you. But they they've already passed. I, I run them through it may be a week and a half of tests. Boom, boom, bam, bam. You know, you know. I got a two hour class and they they're taking like maybe forty minutes of of the time. I'm running them through different doing different techniques and different things. They don't know it's a test, but I'm testing. them. Then next time, boom, they're freestyling, you know? So by the time yeah. they get to quote-unquote formal exam, they've already passed the real test. Now it's just a matter of doing the formality. That's it. That's it, yes. Mm -hmm. Makes yeah. perfect sense to me. Now, when I, when, I test for, when I test for IKCA, it's definitely just like we do for the uh, – just write script right down the line with the script, you know, when, I'm, when they want to ISA. But if you're getting my certificate, then, then it's different, you know. Makes so, sense. Yeah. So what do you perceive as the difference in a person's character between a student and an instructor? Their character? Like when you're going to let somebody teach under you or you're training somebody to be a teacher under you, what are you looking for in that person? Well, what I'm looking for is, is are, they, are they teachable? I look for those that are teachable. Because as I'm teaching, they should be learning how to teach. Uh, I never forget one of my guys uh, asked me uh, how he could teach uh, his daughter. And he had, I think, a, a daughter and a, a, her friend or something. They were going to teach some two, two females. He was going to teach because they were getting ready to go to college. And he was going to teach them. I said, well, how did I teach you? And he looked at me, and I said, How, where, did you, where, where did you start? What's the first thing that you started doing? And I said, stances. I said, we did stances. We did blocks. I explained to you why we, had to, why we go back in a stance. So said, do you remember me swinging? I said, I can touch your face. I said, when you drop in a stance, now I'm swinging. I can't touch your face because now you're, you're a foot and a half away just with your body. You know, and I said, so you want to teach them, start like I, and he looked and said, oh, okay, and a little light bulb went out, and every now and then he would ask me, when do you think I should do this? When do you think I should, so I got tired of him asking me, so I, I wrote, I wrote down a syllabus for him, I just, this is what you, this is what you do, you know, and when they get this, you add that, and I wrote that, and enough that 
he could use that for each belt level all the way up. But uh, and I, I like to throw in some uh, uh, what if techniques, self defense techniques uh, for especially for women if they get grabbed and this, that, and the other. Just things that they can do quickly. So we worked on some of those that he could show them. So uh, very usable things that you know you don't have to take two years to learn. So uh, I should I threw that in. But uh, the character is uh, uh, they have to they have to be they have to be a good character. They have to they have to be the type that that uh, are patient. Uh, one of my uh, one of my black belts was uh, came back and said, "Wow, I, I, you're really patient with us, you know, because he he has no patience when he's teaching. He's teaching somebody, and he, by God, I showed you two times. What are you dumb or something? I said you can't." You can't say that, you know, you can't, you can't, you know, you got to let this person grow. You're going to just throw them all. You can't say that to somebody. You're going to just demoralize them. So, you know, it's so I, I, I look for, I look for those qualities, leadership qualities, patience, and, and, and basically how, how good a student are they with me? How, how do they follow through? How respectful they are. That's transferable, should be transferable if you're, if you're going to instruct, you know, but not everybody's a good instructor. I knew some very, very good, good fighters. I mean, phenomenal fighters. They couldn't teach anybody anything. What they literally do is, when somebody want to learn something, they beat them up. Say, okay, did you learn something? Yeah, I learned that you can really fight, and I can't. You know, <laughs> but uh, I've seen that, and uh, I, you know, that's that, that's infinitely harder to teach effectively than it is to learn to fight yourself. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely, yes. There's, so, a, there's you know hundreds of black belts in every you know every town in America has probably got hundreds of black belts and out of those there's probably you know a handful of really good teachers. That's so. for sure. Yeah, just just a handful. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, looking looking through uh, your student core to figure out who's the next one you're going to be seeing as a good teacher. That's always a fun journey for for me when I'm teaching my students. I imagine you've got the same thing going on. Oh yes, yes, because you, you you know you think you know right off and then. You kind of wonder, like, gee, I don't know. And then some somebody will develop. You say, wow, I didn't see that. You know, they developed and really was, really turned out to be, you know, really great. Then maybe the light bulb goes on a little later. You know, and they, and they like, wow. You know, got a young man. He's in college, and and when he first came, he's a little guy. And when he first came to me, he, uh, I told him, man, you're gonna have to learn really good technique. You're gonna have to listen to me. You're gonna, you know, really listen, and and I'm gonna work with you all the way because you you're a small guy, and I says you you're like the Chinese, the Chinese. But I says, but their bones and muscles, their heart is steel. I says you're gonna, I says you're gonna just rack somebody up with good technique, because you just don't have the strength. You're not you're not you're not very big. You can't outstrength some of the guys you that come in my place. So and boy, that kid, this kid is phenomenal. He's uses really good technique and he works hard at it, you know, and, uh, I can see him. Uh, and he said, he had a, a guy pull a knife on him and he did a technique, a hybrid of a technique, got the guy down and stomped on hand that had the knife, put his knee in his back and waited there till the police came. And they were like, wow, you know, <laughs> you know so, I hear the passion in your voice when you're describing these students of yours. I, I'm, <laughs> I want to tell you, any of your students that get to listen to this podcast, you should know right off the bat how proud your instructor is of you. Oh, yeah. Definitely am. Yeah. So It's you, a good thing. So how many, well, let me rephrase that. So you have your students. Now, how many of those students are now teaching themselves? Have you gotten uh, to the second generation down the line yet? Two of my two of my students are teaching. Two of them. Yeah. So, Grandmaster Boyd, uh, question for you. So, what do you want your students' students to say about you as their teacher? Well, I'd like them to not only say that I taught them good martial arts, good self-defense, good principles of protection for themselves, but I taught them not only to have good physical skills, but good mental skills as character and integrity and respect for one another, uh, to strive for excellence, 
to be flexible not only in their thought process, but in challenges of life to overcome them. There's more ways to overcome. And I, I think if that martial arts is not only what we learn and gain in the studio, but how well we adapt and uh, to life's challenges on the job and with our relationships. And it's, it's not always I'm going to knock the boss upside the head or something. It's uh, how can I get along with him? How can I sidestep him the way we parry and so on? And we can parry things in life. We, as I call it, I tell my students that they can chisau things of life, get it and redirect it, uh, let the motion go. And the same thing with with uh, non-physical things, challenges that come against you. You can move them aside and uh, find better ways to accomplish your, your, your goals in life. So that's what I would like them to think of when they think of my name long time from now when I'm past. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you. So here's a, here's a, a fun softball question for you. Nice, light, easy one, right? Let's say I'm just starting out and you have five minutes to teach me something that I'm going to practice for the next month. What do you teach me? I would teach you awareness, awareness of your surroundings. Uh, first of all, I would, I would teach them, number one, the cell phone is not your friend. If you're walking out of your home or if you're walking through a parking lot and you're looking down, and you're texting or looking at your phone, you're not aware of your circumstances. Slick Willie and his brother Marvin can be right the next car over to knock you upside the head and take what you have. I tell them awareness is the most important thing. Not only aware, be aware of your circumstances. If you see a crowd and it's a thugs or something, you feel uneasy about that, perhaps go across the street uh, and, uh, go into an establishment and look around to see if they're still there or not. Uh, if you're in a mall and there was a light where you parked and now you come out of the mall and there's no light, but you walk over there anyway, you're not aware of your circumstances because that light didn't go out by accident. There's somebody, somebody took that light out so they could hide behind your car next to your car and it could be danger. So I tell them awareness is most important. And not only awareness of your surroundings, but be aware of yourself. If you've got a cold or if you sprung your ankle, uh, and even if you you think you're a pretty good athlete, you're not going to move very well. Uh, be, be aware of that, how well you feel. Each day you may feel differently. And so you have to be aware of self, uh, how well you're feeling, if you're upset, not upset, uh, you're carrying bags in your hand and you get jumped on, you got bags. Well, you got to learn to use the bags, you know, sling, sling them things and get out of there. So I teach awareness and I, I give them, uh, I give them tips on awareness. And from that, I, I was teaching a group of Viola students and professors in a group session. And I told them about awareness and the cell phone. The next week, because this was a five-week course, the next week, one of the students who happened to be my daughter-in-law, uh, when she's the wife of a, of a professor at Biola, my, my son is, and so is a professor there, and um, she said, I got something I need to tell the group. And she says, can I please tell it? Can I please tell it? I said, sure. So she, she, she uh, assists a dance instructor. Her daughter does dance, but she assists this instructor by making uniforms, outfits for the dancers. She's a very good seamstress, and she leads a team of seamstress that, that'll make all types of little outfits for them. And uh, so she went to meet this dance instructor, and she was waiting for the dance instructor to walk up to this locked facility. The dance instructor was on her phone. She opened up the door. And my daughter-in-law said she walked. She was probably five feet behind her. She opened up the door. She came in. She went all the way through their dance studio, went to the back office, her personal office, unlocked that, went in, and was fumbling around in the office. My daughter-in-law went all the way through and was standing behind her and tapped her on the shoulder, and the woman almost wet her pants. She was not aware that anybody was behind her because she was on her phone doing whatever she was doing 
And my daughter-in-law said, it was an ex- you just taught us about awareness and how you, if you're not aware, she said, I could have been a rapist. She says, I could have robbed the place. I could have hurt this lady. And she never would have known it. So that was a good lesson for the rest of them about how, the, how, how important awareness is. That's excellent advice is making sure you're always aware of your surroundings. Oh, yeah. I'm actually going to write yeah. that down. I might steal it myself. Go right ahead. Everything I got, <laughs> I stole. <laughs> we, 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 we learn. You know, we learn. We, and we, you know, like tempo was bleeding and bawling <laughs> and grafting. Well, that's what we do. We pick up bits of information and blend and brawl and, and graft. You know, that's it. Yeah. I love it. What do you think is the most useful tool that you stole from somebody else? Wow. Good question. Most useful tool that I stole from somebody else. Okay. Uh, interesting. Uh, I was watching a video of small circle jujitsu. And there's a guy that not only is small circle jujitsu, but he, he blends it with Ji Kune Do, which is interesting because I know Ji Kune Do, yeah, but I like don't know small Yeah, and, and I watched this guy trap and grab the fingers, grab the, just grab the hands and start racking them up. But he's doing the trapping, boom, hit, grab the fingers, pull them down. And I started incorporating that. I can't think of the man's name right now, but I happened to run across him on YouTube. And I've always been fascinated by Wally J's small circle jiu-jitsu, how when you're punching and a guy is moving, they end up hitting the hand and grabbing the fingers. And uh, I found out I could with the Filipino art with knives, we, you can you can do that. But of course, you don't want to grab the fingers because they have a knife, right? So, but you can disarm and cut and stuff. But I found that to be very fascinating, and I started incorporating that with some of my senior guys. And just a little bit, I have to watch with the fingers because uh, uh, they they some of my guys are really energetic. They can snap your finger in a minute. So yeah, you've got a whole lot of broken fingers and nobody in class for a while. That's it. That's a, be, be, be nice with this stuff. You know, you can't you can't be full blast Kimple with this. But it's very interesting how this how this guy did that. And I thought it was a beautiful blend, and I have not anywhere near arrived at that. But I have made it work. I have made it work in some instances. So it's uh, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I came up in a traditional style that had a lot of uh, let's talk, let's call it grabbing and tying things in knots and throwing things. So that you, you hit my uh, sweet spot there myself. So, oh yeah, Fun times. you know about that. I love I love takedowns. I just love I do all types of takedowns. I'll borrow steel. I learned so many takedowns in Salat and the Filipino art that I never knew they did that, and it was just it, it fits with Kempo. It fits with anything. It fits with street fighting. If you're straight line fighting some a hard style, then it's not going to fit because this you have to basically flow more. You know, more of a looser flow. But some of this, this stuff works really well. And Salat does a lot of, uh, I would say, leg takedowns, leg check. They use their legs to take you down, and I, I like that too. So just learning that kind of stuff with leverage. You know, I show my guys. I said, look, I'm gonna take one finger. I'm going to put one finger, I'm going to put it right in your hip. Just one finger, that's all. Now watch what I do. And boom, and they're down. They look at me like, how the heck? Now I got some pretty big guys. Love I it. said, no, that's it. But, you know, it just lets them know it can be done, you know? And so I, I like that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that leads me to another, uh, another inquiry for you. You've trained with a lot of legends in the martial arts community is what it really sounds like. And so everybody's got in their journey at least a teacher or sometimes a couple of teachers who had a really strong influence on your life. So instead of asking that question, I'm going to ask you, what did you learn about teaching from those people who had such a particularly strong influence? I learned not to throw up on the baby. Don't take the, don't take the baby. Let's put it this way. Don't take the baby to hometown buffet. <laughs> and grab grab everything you got. A baby's going to eat what a baby eats. Learn to give it to them little at a time. 
and don't don't do the home buffet thing. Even if that they can't eat it, they're gonna leave it. It's just too much. So you, you have to have a systematic way of just giving them a principle, a particular move. Let them get that. Then we we advance that particular move and 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 flow into something else. Show how that can flow to this way to that way. And I like locks, wrist locks, arm locks because they flow. And I, I'll teach that flowing method. Uh, just the way the body moves, it flows certain ways. And uh, we do stick patterns, knife patterns. They flow a certain way. That doesn't mean that it'll always work because you're with an opponent that is not cooperative, you know. And I tell him not only is Murphy going to show up, his brother Marvin is going to show up too, you know. <laughs> and so you're going to have a whole bunch of Murphy's Law come in there. With, you know, it's not going to work the way you think, but we always should flow and have a backup. You know, have yet to find anybody who's been able to get a hold of that dude long enough to tie him down and throw him away. Could, could you could you repeat that again? Oh yeah, I just said I've, I've yet to find anybody who's been able to lasso Murphy long enough to tie him up and throw him out for good. Oh <laughs> no, no, Murphy keeps popping up. He's good. He's good. He's got more moves than X lax Believe me. <laughs> yeah, he's so, right there. I'm telling you. So the biggest yeah. thing you got from those gentlemen were basically it's it's making sure that you're teaching in a systematized fashion so you don't overload anybody. That's right. And and also you should you should all you shouldn't assume that a person knows let's say they already know the basic and they're already and, and they're they you think they know the intermediate, so you're gonna start at the advanced level teaching them. You've just lost these people. I like to start right at the very basic because a lot of times guys that think they got it will find out, oh my God, I missed that. And then you can build from the basic principle and, and go up, you know. And uh, now there's a lot of guys that just don't get good basics or maybe it, the instructor just got tired of, you know, sometimes you can show a guy three times, four times, and you figure, well, you'll get it. Well, the guy didn't get it. So once they, you go back over and somebody else is showing them, a little light bulb goes off because now he's heard it a different way or maybe he's matured enough so now he can get that principle, you know, intellectually. And, and and mentally and seeding it in so he can do it physically, and uh, so it's uh so I like to start basic and build on that you know all the time I don't care what I'm doing my guys already know how to trap I do uh, the jeep the June fan gung fu trapping or jeep and modified wing trap and I'll show them. we still start out I said this is the basics and we go from here we still start out there then they then they'll flow into anything they want to flow into. But uh, we always start with that. Yeah. So keep it simple and don't overload anybody. That's it. Yeah. So I really appreciate your time. We've been talking now for about an hour or so. I don't want to hold you too much longer, but I got just a couple of last questions for you. So sure. Okay. If you could train with anybody from history or from the present, who would you train with and why? Let's let's say for for giggles, let's make this outside of what you've already done in your training. So anybody other than that. Anybody outside I've already done in my training, hmm? okay. Uh, I would have loved to train with Mitosi, okay, James Mitosi. And, and uh, he brought the original Kempo back from Japan, and he's in Hawaii. And he had a select group of students that he showed, and he had so much knowledge. Uh, I just would have loved to have, have been uh, – have been there to see that, you know, and to be to, for that influence that I think that would be beautiful to see. Yeah. Okay. So here's the fun one. What does your future hold? My future? Oh, my future. Oh, okay. Well, you know, uh, I told my guys I was going to retire at, at 75 and I'll be, I'm 73 now. They said, oh, no, no, you're not going to retire. And I mentioned that over at Chuck Sullivan's and they were like, absolutely not. You know, yeah, I, I imagine that got a big this, veto. Oh yeah, big veto. <laughs> but this this is fun for me. I really love doing what I'm doing. I look forward to this. Uh, I said I was going to get these last two guys that just made black belt of mine. I said I was going to stop when they made black belt, 
but now I got more students. So, you know, I, I just love the teaching as long as they're interested. Uh, I, I'm uh, going to keep going. I, I uh, am uh, having a lot of input with the IKCA, uh, with Mr. Sullivan. And uh, I, I love uh, just being a part of that and uh, some of the things that we're doing, projects we're working on. I like that. And so it's just keeping me busy. And um, I'm just going to keep as long as I'm having fun, uh, I'm healthy, I keep going. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. You know, I've been blessed. I've had my knees work, my hips work. I can still do leaping kicks at 73. I can still free spar. Uh, so, you know, I'm just having fun. That's it. And uh, as long as I'm still able to hold up, I hold up. Now, I'm not saying when I freestyle, I'm not saying I'm as quick as I used to be, you know, but uh, but I'm smooth, that's for sure. <laughs> but anyway, I'm just going to keep going as long as I can. And when I when I reach a point to where it's, I'll say, either my body wears out or mentally I just don't feel like it, then I'll, 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 I'll sit down. But up, up to then, I'm just having the time of my life. Yeah. I'm glad we're nowhere near that yet. Coming back in, we've had about an hour-long chat. Uh, Grandmaster Boyd, I wanted to thank you so much for taking your time out of your day to be here with us on this podcast. Um, if anybody would like to contact Grandmaster Boyd, the best way to get a hold of him is the email address cboyd, that's uh, c-b-o-y-d, at karateconnection.com. If there's anything else you'd like to uh, ask for Grandmaster Boyd, if you'd like to see him come back again, feel free to email him at that cboyd at karateconnection.com address, and we'll see if we can make that happen for him. Grandmaster Boyd, is there anything you'd like to say as we sign off? Uh, just all those who are studying and all those who might think about studying a martial art, be it Kempo or anything, uh, it's a wonderful way to, uh, to challenge yourself mentally and physically. And I've found that over the years, it will keep you uh, healthy and you'll have uh, a lot of peace in your life. So it's a, it's a great way to, to grow in every area of your life. And that's about it. Thank you so much for your time, sir. I really appreciated having this conversation with you. You bet. My pleasure, Steve. All right. You have a great rest of your day. You too. Okay. Bye. Well, that was my conversation with Grandmaster Chuck Boyd. He's had an incredible journey in his martial arts career, and I feel very blessed he chose to share his experiences with us on this show. It's important every day to keep moving forward. Even if it's 1% forward, that's still forward. Wrapping up here, it really takes a team to pull this show together, and so I want to send a special thank you to our podcast host, Podbean, to Anastasio Vasquez for providing our music, and a shout-out to our webmaster, Marcus Moore. Episode number two will feature Dr. Ron Chappelle talking about his early years in the arts, his training with Ark Wong and Ed Parker Sr., and much more. Find us at www.artistsofmotion.com on our Facebook page, Artists of Motion. You can send an email to pod at artistsofmotion.com. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play. If you want quick links, you get www.artistsofmotion.com slash iTunes or www.artistsofmotion.com slash Google Play. I'm Steve Zalazowski. Catch you next time on the Artist of Motion podcast.